Over the past six years, you've heard me tell stories that sometimes featured elected or appointed officials from Philadelphia and Pennsylvania. You've heard stories that included former or current district attorneys like Lynn Abraham and Larry Kasner. Governors past and present, Ed Rendell, Tom Wolf, even Josh Shapiro. Philadelphia mayors from the terror that was Frank Rizzo, Mayor Wilson Good, Mayor Nutter, and Mayor Kenny. Philadelphia is the sixth largest city in the country. And as the largest city in Pennsylvania, Philly is sometimes referred to as the tail that wags the dog. It's a primarily democratic city. Now, I use that term not only as an indicator of voting trends, but the ideals of Philadelphia. It's a sanctuary city. It's considered one of the friendliest cities for members of the LGBTQIA community, although sadly we have our share of bigotry and hate crimes. It's one of the most diverse yet segregated cities in the country, especially when you look at which neighborhoods are thriving, which neighborhoods have more support and services, even which neighborhoods have their trash picked up on a regular cycle versus those neighborhoods where kids have to walk into the street on their way to school to avoid corners that have become public dumping sites. If you're local to Philadelphia, you certainly know, and even if you're not local, you may have heard, we've got an election coming up in just a few weeks, the mayoral election. I read this week that actor Mark Ruffalo endorsed a Philadelphia mayoral candidate. Yeah, that was surprising to say the least. Yes, the mayoral election is on everybody's mind, but that's not the only office open for election on May 16th. City council positions are open. City council is like Philadelphia's legislative body that works in connection with the mayor. City commissioner is open, Pennsylvania Supreme Court. There's an open seat on the Commonwealth Court of Pennsylvania. The list is expansive. But there's one role that I'd like to talk with you about today, and it's something that hasn't come up before. It's the city controller. This is a position I didn't know much about until I realized one of the candidates is someone I voted for in a congressional election last year. The city controller is the chief auditor of the city of Philadelphia's budget. They're like a watchdog, making sure the funds being spent by the city for the city are being spent where they're supposed to. They're the chief auditor of Philadelphia's school district and so much more. The candidate who continues to catch my attention with her authenticity, her influence, and her vision through a belief that, and this is a quote, we must focus on creating a healthy, functional, and prosperous Philadelphia in which we all benefit is Alexandra Hunt. Alexandra is looking for creative solutions to Philadelphia's issues using an evidence-based approach. She has a master's in public health from Temple University, an incredible work ethic, a commitment to advocacy for social, racial, environmental equality, and she is just cool as hell. When the opportunity presented itself to interview Alexandra Hunt here on Twisted Philly, to get to know her better, to get to know where she stands on issues in our city, which means an opportunity for you to get to know her better too, I was so excited. She is a strong, intelligent, creative woman, and I'm thrilled to have her join me today. I'm Dina Marie, your host on this week's Not-So-Twisted Journey. Welcome to Twisted Philly.
Please join me in welcoming Alexandra Hunt to the Twisted Philly podcast. Alexandra is running for city controller in Philadelphia. Alexandra, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Good to be here. Of course. It was a surprise and an honor when I pinged you on TikTok to say... Would you like to come on my show? And you instantly said yes. I was absolutely thrilled and really, really excited. My family and I have been following your campaign since you ran for congressional rep for District 3 in Philadelphia, which is where we live. We were so excited to vote for you. And I have to say, as what was considered a relative newcomer, you got over 30% of the vote in that race. 20% of the vote. 20%. Okay. I got over 25,000 votes. Yes. I think that's fantastic. And I was thrilled to see you come back into the arena, this time in a campaign for city controller in Philadelphia. Alexandra, for folks who may not be familiar with you, would you like to take a few minutes and share a little bit about your background, your journey, and what led you to get involved in Philly politics? Both my parents are teachers, and I have a twin brother who is on the spectrum. And I left my mother's home while I was still in high school and became financially independent and lived on my own. I left Rochester where I was born and raised, and I knew that I was in search of a new home. And I went to University of Richmond in Richmond, Virginia. I graduated college in three years. During that time, I worked as a sales associate, a stripper, and a server. And then I came straight to Philadelphia for a master's degree. And the way Philadelphia moves, it's a very blue-collar working city. People just put their head down, go to work, and really fight for for the the community that they want and the the things that they believe in, including the Eagles um, and <laughs> other sports teams. I really loved how Philly had such a pulse and felt at home because that I'm also a fighter. I'll put my head down and go to work, and I work pretty hard for the things that I believe in too. I was on the path to become a doctor and I was working out on a reservation in South Dakota when I had this epiphany that if you look at all these problems bearing down on people, like it's a dam that's about to break open, Mm -hmm. becoming a doctor only plugs one hole and it's not going to stop the dam from breaking. If you look at it from a public health angle, from a more systemic angle, and ask the question of how can I build a better dam? That is what I want to tackle. I want to tackle that question. So I shifted my career to pursue public health. And I uh, started attending Temple for a master's in public health degree. And I was working in oncology, clinical research, and then a pandemic hit. I was already of the belief that we deeply need systemic change. When I saw the mismanagement from the government at all levels of of this enormous crisis that one, we should have been prepared for because we knew that this was a looming threat. And two, it turned its backs on everyday people. People on the ground did not get the resources that we needed, made it political, made it Mm -hmm. uh, about protecting the, the few and the wealthy. 
that was when I jumped into electoral politics because I was of the belief that I was too far left to really have a place in American politics and ran for Congress, as we've already discussed, was able to really build a movement of people who felt seen and heard by our campaign. That was when people have asked me, who do you think voted for you? I was like, I think it was people who under who knew that I understood what it's like to live in the shadows, that if we work together, we, we can come together and no longer have to live in those shadows, no longer have to be marginalized by a system that doesn't favor us. And I think that was what comprised my over 25,000 votes. And so city controller is a very overlooked position. It's extremely powerful and influential, but it's very technical and not sexy. So I decided to run for it because the left is often criticized for having these big ideals, but it's slammed with the question of how are you going to pay for it? And if city controller has the values of progressives, and is also able to follow the money, we can demonstrate how we can afford to pay for universal childcare and a fully funded school system, a public school system. The money is there. The prioritization is not. And with a progressive city controller, that can shift everything. So that's why I chose to run for it. You said something about the folks that voted for you and the people that are part of your village. Your transparency, your vulnerability, some of what you just shared over the last few minutes, I think that was what really resonated with me as a single mom, as someone who spent many years struggling financially on my own with my daughter. You talk about if someone's going to go for the money and look for the money and track every dollar, knowing what it takes to earn a dollar. I've heard you say that a number of times is a real skill. I mean, obviously, plus, you know, your background in analytics and, and public health, but that certainly resonated with me and I think it resonated with a lot of other people too is is just your authenticity your transparency and it feels like this is my personal perspective I'm not assigning this to anybody else but it feels like that level of transparency may not always have existed in some of our public offices in Philadelphia and across the country I yeah I think people were very shocked by the level of transparency that I brought to the campaign and sharing my story I think I also shocked myself a bit. I want to be, as an elected official, I want to be trusted, but I know that you have to earn trust. And so people have to understand how you're going to move and how you're going to think. And you have to let them in to understand that. So they need to know where you've been. That trust can't be established without sharing your story, without saying, okay, these are my experiences. And whether you are comfortable or uncomfortable hearing about them, that's not the point. The point is that I want you to understand that I'm going to do everything I can to put every dollar into the communities that need it most because I know the value of those dollars. There's been some rhetoric around some of my opponents. One of my opponents took a lot of money from the FOP, the Fraternal Order of the Police, which is a very right-wing organization. And they said, well, if she gets in, it's only two years. And that statement just deeply hurt me because I've been on a cliff edge where days are long and you're living paycheck to paycheck in two years. Like you can't even pick your head up and think about two years. It is such a privileged statement. I understand that going into this role, how long each day can be when you're not making enough to not see an empty bank account at the end of the week. Mm -hmm. 
One of the things you mentioned about your time in Philly and the pandemic, and I know that you worked really on the front lines as a volunteer during early stages of the pandemic. I'm sure you've seen exactly how it really impacted Philadelphians at, at different levels of our society. It feels like, at least to me, that folks aren't considering what the last few years have done to cities, especially a city like Philadelphia, when someone loses their job. They're not even able to live paycheck to paycheck because they may have not even been getting a paycheck. You know, I hear a lot of folks talk about that has nothing to do with crime. And I really struggle with that because when folks are put into dire circumstances, you're creating a space where there's no other options. There's no resources. I was just curious about your perspective on that and, and what impacts you think that might have had on the city. Yeah, I, I think this has been a long time coming. And I do think it comes from a divestment from communities that need support. In public health, we call it needs-based crimes where people are stealing money or food that they need to survive. They're uh, trying to, to make money in ways that are considered illegal in order to keep a roof over their heads. Everyone wants a quick fix to the gun violence that's happening in Philadelphia. I, I want it too, but there isn't an easy fix to it. What has to be undone is years of divestment that go beyond the pandemic, that go back to the war on drugs and racism that's been in the United States for centuries. We need to invest in communities through where their needs are, which is housing, which is education, which is opportunity. And if you give people opportunity and the chance for a bright and hope hopeful future, they're not going to throw that away. Also, if we address the mental health crisis that this country is in through universal health care, which includes mental health care. That's another avenue where people will not be responding from a traumatized place, which a lot of mm-hmm. a lot of people are. You mentioned education, and I know one of the roles of the city controller is to be like the chief auditor of the Philadelphia School District. Part of your platform is really how to make sure that we get a sound funding for Philadelphia School District. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that. And there's a potential, based on information that I read and some facts that you shared, potential for a nearly half billion deficit by 2027. Why do you think this our school district is in that financial situation? Could you share a little bit about your plan to work with communities to create a fully funded financial strategy for our public schools in Philadelphia? So the reason that our public schools, Philadelphia Public School District is in a financial crisis situation is because of the state and because Republicans at the state level have designed school funding to be that way, but also because my former opponent, Congressman Dwight Evans, was part of that final vote that ended up kneecapping the school system. We don't need to finger point the point that needs to be made is how do we get out of this? The school district cannot raise money on itself by itself. The city has to raise revenue or and the state has to raise revenue. And we're having issues with getting state funding. So that means that the, the city has to get creative with where it's going to find money. Also, the money that is set aside for the school district needs to be used properly. What we've had four schools close due to asbestos, there are municipal bonds set aside to refurbish school buildings that are being used to make 
principal's office is really pretty. And that is something that city controller as the chief auditor can make sure money is being directed where it needs to go and into the betterment that is going to do the most for the kids. So you make sure the allocations are going where they're supposed to. Correct. The other thing is where can we find more money that isn't going to raise taxes off the backs of working people who already are struggling to pay their taxes? Well, we have some really, really wealthy nonprofits that are, I did air quotes, (laughs) (laughs) that are abusing that, that nonprofit status. And so I'm talking about University of Pennsylvania. I'm talking about Drexel. I'm talking about HUP that they do not pay the real estate tax because they take advantage of that nonprofit status and say, well, we don't have to pay taxes. Yes, you do. And as city controller, I'm going to have the guts to send them a bill. And if they don't like that bill, if they ignore that bill, if they won't pay that bill, then I'll take them to court. And I know that I'll win because this, this has been a case that has already been won in the state of Pennsylvania. That will raise millions of dollars of extra revenue that we can then apply to the school district. You're freaking amazing. I just, I'm sitting here like I'm trying to keep it in, but this is an, an audio experience. Looking at your face and the determination and the commitment and just really like the clear cutness of it. That's a pretty simple issue. It's an advantage that they shouldn't be taking advantage of. I just love hearing it. I love looking at the conviction, the conviction on your face as, as you respond to these questions. My producer and I were talking earlier about this role. I think what he said was really need somebody that has some balls, if I can just put that out there. Or a vagina. Or a vagina, which, as Betty White told us, takes a hell of a lot more beating than balls do. So (laughs) (laughs) That's what comes through for me when I follow you online and I don't do a lot of social outings because some of my, as I mentioned, some some mental health struggles that I'm still working on through the pandemic. And I see some of your events and rallies and things that you've attended. And I'm like, God, I wish I could be there, but at least I can follow it online. Again, that level of commitment and your willingness to ask really tough questions. I sent some information to your team about a story I had been working on about unethical behavior that was happening back in 2000 for 10 years with a former sheriff taking kickbacks and then getting a house. And I'm not saying allegedly because this case did go to court. This person was proven guilty and is now serving in prison for crimes that were committed. That happened 10 to 20 years ago with a former sheriff. However, in April of this year, according to Ryan Briggs and William Bender of the Philadelphia Inquirer, The city learned that allegedly the sheriff's office, and this is a quote from that Inquirer article, diverted hundreds of thousands of dollars intended to hire more uniformed staff, including deputies, to fund hefty raises for executive staff and other office workers. This came out shortly after the sheriff's office met with city council to request over a million dollars in additional funding because they're, quote, underfunded and short on deputies. You've been very vocal about a different issue with the sheriff's office. It's not something that's been a direct result of the current staff, but a longtime issue in Philadelphia. For decades, allegedly proceeds from some sheriff sales may not have been made public knowledge, nor have surplus from those sales always been returned to the property owners. Let's talk a little bit about that. You know, what have some of these actions done to residents of Philadelphia and who are some of the residents that have likely been most affected by this? So we're talking about 
tens of thousands of share sales. And we're talking about likely billions of dollars that have added up over decades. It didn't start with this current sheriff, but it hasn't ended. In bringing this issue forward, the response out of the sheriff's office has been highly concerning that they take this as a personal attack rather than as something that needs to be addressed and accountability measure of where's the plan and how you're going to get people's money back. When something like this has gone on for this long, Sometimes you need to go outside of that area and find the solution elsewhere to come in and clean it up. And that's what city controller can do. At this point, this has been going on for four decades. People have died in poverty. They've been living in poverty. And this is predominantly Black Philadelphians who are impacted, working Philadelphians and older Philadelphians. And uh, they lose the way that they were building generational wealth. Yeah. You're gutting generational wealth this this way. It's why Philadelphia has still such a high poverty rate. How can City Controller address this? City Controller has the power to subpoena bank statements. I'll install a forensic accounting team, and a forensic accounting team will go through the practices of the office of the sheriff's office and make recommendations for best practices. I'll install a watchdog in the sheriff's office who's going to do their accounting measures. They'll have an accountant. We'll parse through the bank statements to find out where all the money is. We're going to have to find how to get that back and then create a database and a searchable website where people can see if they're owed money. On top of that, because a lot of these people don't realize they're owed money, there will have to be outreach to inform them. And then lastly, hold the sheriff's office accountable to complying with the home charter and these court orders. They have to upload a distribution sheet in 30 days after each sale, and they have to keep accounting records and a general ledger. Anyone that might refer to other candidates who have experience working in that office, listening to you, your level of financial acumen is significant. I saw an interview, a clip of an interview on TikTok where somebody was asking about, oh, well, you know, what if people say you don't have as much experience as someone else? I think people just need to open up their ears and listen to you. It's not about having worked in a particular office already. The plan that you're laying out, it's compelling and it's actionable. It really comes from a place of common sense, everything that you just shared. You don't need to have worked in the controller's office to be the city controller. This is an executive position that needs to have a vision of what needs to happen and how to execute it. And that's one of my strengths. You've got that and more. I was shocked when I was reading through your plan online. You mentioned outreach, that there's a lot of folks who may not even be aware that the situation affects them. They wouldn't know to go to a website to look and see if their name is there. And so how do you engage in increasing awareness? One of the things that I saw on your website was about harm reduction and really an increased focus and commitment to public health and that there's less than 1% of the budget is earmarked for short-term harm prevention programs and also that the results of some of those programs may not be yielding what folks would hope. I wondered, is it a lack of funding? Could it also be a lack of awareness? Besides funding, what are some of the other factors that could be impacting some of the programs that we have now? There's a couple of different issues at play with the funding for harm reduction and for violence reduction strategies. 
one of the issues is that there's so little funding addressed to this that it creates very high stakes on the programs that do get the funding. However, the programs that do get the funding don't have any sort of analysis applied to them of, is this working? And we're not getting the results that we need. As city controller can pull out data of the outcomes of certain programs and say, this is where funding would do greatly to be expanded. I think one area that is overlooked as a violence reduction strategy, and this is, I'm very biased and I, I will say that, but is after school sports. It keeps kids busy. It teaches them teamwork. It teaches them leadership skills. It gives them a competitive edge, something to fight for, something to believe in. My sport is soccer, but I'm also thinking of basketball and volleyball and football, any of the sports that they want to play. There is a lack of funding, especially with girls' sports. I think this is so essential to the upbringing of children. It's very easy to see the outcomes through funding sports teams. You can bring people together. You can bring community together. That can also be true for the arts and for music, that if you give these structures, you'll see the outcome on the other side is passion and fulfillment. And that should really be the goal. Everything you're talking about, like it it happens. It makes a difference. It's just getting the people, the community, the funding, as you're saying, getting the resources that you need to make it happen. Okay, so your bias is sports. My bias is theater. I was a theater kid for as long as I can remember. I participated in local theater as an adult. There are so many life skills you learn, whether it's sports or the arts, about showing up, teamwork, inspiration. A few years ago, I saw a preview of an original Philly opera called We Shall Not Be Moved. It's the story of five Philadelphia teenagers who form their own family of sorts and take shelter in a condemned house in West Philly which happens to be the house on Osage Avenue, where the city bombed the members of MOVE in 1985. I had a chance to interview leaders from Opera Philadelphia and a group called Art Sanctuary about the opera. So through a joint initiative, those two groups brought music and arts back into schools through after-school programs. This opera was written based on letters and poetry created by the Philly kids in these programs. The kids got to work with Broadway musicians, composers, producers, who then created an original opera inspired not only by what happened to Move, but these kids' reaction to it decades later. These were kids who may not have been into opera at all, but they had a chance to sing and play instruments and learn from people working in so many different aspects of the arts. And their thoughts, their words became a fully produced opera. That's amazing. It's called We Will Not Be Moved. We Shall Not Be Moved. I think that is, it's such an important way to empower people where they can, these kids can look at the product of their work, of their creativity, of their effort, and it became something seemingly extremely powerful. Philly kids did that. Right. Right. It was an extraordinary collaboration between so many different folks and that, that these kids got to work with professionals who could then teach them and, and they learned from the kids too. I think the other thing too is that it gave them an opportunity to address something that was such devastation for this city and process it generations later. I think it's important to 
recognize how the issues have an impact on children. I think often we we talk about what are we going to do about the children and and these are ways that that we could better things for the children, but we talk over them a lot and I think it's important to to find out what they want because they are growing up in this time and they feel these issues. Mm-hmm. I have I have spoken to too many kids who have had to grow up too quickly from Philadelphia and they know exactly the problems. They say, why don't adults care? Why doesn't our government care? And are asking us what it feels like to have these schools close on us, what it feels like to not have air conditioning in our school, what it feels like to wear a crappy jersey or to have to play with the boys because they're not funding separate boys and girls teams. There's no theater options. They're experts in this. And I think there is a lack of recognition that experience is not just the resume. Experience is living it. Mm-hmm. And we've got so many kids who are living it, so many young people who are living it. The ways that it's always been the status quo has been to tell people what they need instead of listening to what they need. I bet those kids who did that opera they were like, I don't know anything about opera, but they were asked what they need and they needed a creative outlet and they were given that. Too many times we see such a focus on, for lack of a better word, criminalizing kids. Well, you can't go here at a certain time now and you can't go there at a certain time now and you're not allowed to be here without adults. And this negative anticipatory behavior, instead of focusing on what they can't do, let's sit down and give them a voice in what they would like to do and then figure out a way to make it happen. Alexandra, is there anything that you would like to talk about with your campaign, your journey for city council, being an advocate here in the city of Philadelphia for racial equality, for environmental equality, human rights? Is there anything we haven't touched on that you'd like an opportunity to talk about? The only thing that I would like to add about City Controller is that City Controller sits on the Board of Pensions, the Gas Commission, and the Sinking Fund and has a lot of influence in the directions that those boards move in. The Board of Pensions is extremely important to the financial stability of a city and have traditionally been invested in things that do not benefit workers and are subject to the national influxes of the economy. The same thing with the sinking fund. The pension funds are really invested in fossil fuels. The sinking fund is invested in Wall Street. City controller can whip the votes on those boards to invest in something much more useful to the city, like a public bank. I am not sure that my other opponents are aware of the capacity of this office and have that understanding, the influence of how city controller can really shift the stability or instability of the city of Philadelphia. It's very important. It hasn't been getting a lot of attention with the mayoral race and it deserves it. Alexandra, you have been so generous with your time and thoughtful with your perspective and everything that you shared with us today. I really want to thank you for taking the time to join me. I can't wait till May 16th so I can go in and cast my vote for you for City Controller. 18 days. I am number 42 on the ballot and first for City Controller. And I hope I've gotten some votes. I hope you have too.
Twisted Philly is researched, hosted, and produced by me, Dina Marie, and available wherever you listen to podcasts. Additional production assistance is provided by Jeremy Collins, creator and host of the podcasts We Listen To podcast and founder of the online community of the same name. Follow me on TikTok and Instagram at Twisted Philly to see many of the locations, people, and histories I discuss in the show. (laughs) 